0: 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The title of this message this morning is The Importance of Spiritual Growth. The goal for us in this message is to truly realize all that we have in the Lord and what we are to, to continue to do to grow in our walk in the Lord. Every now and then I notice that in my yard, there's a new plant that has grown or a plant uh, that has been planted that I didn't know about. (laughs) And we'll pull into the driveway and I'll ask my wife, I'll say, honey, is, is that a new plant? And she'll say, yeah, remember I planted those seeds last year? Or... It's been there for the longest time, haven't you? You know, how come you haven't noticed it? But it's grown and all of a sudden there's this, you know, life in this and there's this big plant. And uh, I realize that when those plants in my yard are truly alive, they grow. And when it comes to the believer's life, spiritual growth is vital because spiritual growth indicates that we are alive in Christ. It indicates that we are growing in him. In this epistle, 2 Peter, he wrote to warn believers about the dangers of false teachers who were spreading damaging doctrine that was trying to come into the church. But he begins by exhorting the believers to be anchored in the true knowledge of the living God. Where continued growth in the midst of persecution and false teachers... Is to happen, and now it is one of the themes here in this epistle. And he calls on the believers to keep growing spiritually, show diligence in their personal walk with the Lord. And you see Peter's heart and purpose in writing this letter. If you drop down to verse twelve, verses twelve to fourteen here, it says, "Peter, uh, Peter, he says, for this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things." though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing shortly that I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And Peter was letting the believers know, he was telling the believers that as long as he was around, He was going to continue to remind them. He would always remind them. He was going to stir them on to growing and walking upright with the Lord. Peter was looking ahead. He was looking to the future. These were probably the last words written by him. It was close to his death. According to tradition, Peter was crucified shortly after this was written. When they were going to crucify him, Tradition has it that Peter refused to be crucified like his Lord. And he said, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. So according to tradition, Peter was crucified in the upside down position. So he knew he was going to die. And he is basically saying that he wants to remind the church often of spiritual things, even though they already knew them. So that after he went home to be with the Lord, that they would hopefully remember and that they would hopefully apply them these truths that he's going to lay out here to their walk with the Lord. Notice he says in verse 13, as long as I am in this tent to stir you up, it means to revive them, to awaken them, to arouse them in truths known. This was Peter's heart. It's just like with my two sons, when they were in their teens, Gloria and I would always remind them when they would go out and fellowship with their friends, we would always remind them, hey, you guys, make sure you're a good example. Make sure you don't blow your witness. Be a good example. And after a while, my boys would, you know, they would say, I know, Dad. I know, Mom. And I would tell them, I know you know, but I'm still going to remind you. As long as we are still around, we're going to remind them. Why? Because we love them. And this is what Peter is doing here. This is Peter's heart. He wants to remind the church. He wants to stir the church on to stay on track in their walk with the Lord. And he wants the church to keep following Jesus in the midst of persecution, to stay committed to the Lord, to hold on to his word and to stay on course in the midst of all the false teachers and the junk that was trying to hit the church. And even though we may be saved, even though we may have salvation, it doesn't mean that there is nothing else to deal with when it comes to the issues and the sins that try and get in the way, whether they are big or small. And one of the things that is important for us to do is to always take that time to examine our walk. Make sure we're growing in the Lord. Because the Lord desires for us to know him more intimately and to develop and grow in our relationship with him. Because that's why he created us. And the result of knowing him more and more as we take that time, as we develop, as we grow in him, is that he will give us the strength we need. He will give us the, the wisdom that we need. He will give us the direction that we need to be able to handle all the difficulties and the heartaches and the problems and all the things that life throws our way. So we see Peter's heart, and he wants to stir on the church. So this morning, or actually this afternoon, we're going to look at the source for growing in the Lord, verses one through four. the responsibility of growing in the Lord, verses five through seven, and the necessity of growing in the Lord, verses eight through 11. the source, the responsibility and the necessity of growing in the Lord. The source of growing in the Lord, verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 and 2, Peter opens with a greeting and then he develops that into an understanding of the great value of the knowledge of God in verses 3 and 4. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The way Peter introduces himself is important. Notice he first calls himself a bondservant, there in verse 1, and then an apostle of Jesus Christ. As Peter's life was coming to a close, he had a clear understanding of who he was. And who his Lord was. Peter considered himself first a bondservant. Literally a slave. One bound to another. As a slave. It's emphasizing that he was owned by Jesus Christ. Bondservant emphasizes the, that the believer is no longer his own. But that he has been bought with a, by a great price. And being a bondservant. It's not speaking of an unwilling slavery. Where the slave wants to escape, but it speaks of the spiritual yielding of a person who is totally devoted to loving his Lord. Peter is saying that he belonged entirely to Jesus Christ. He was purchased by him, and as a result, he was going to trust and obey his master. In his first letter... In uh, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter declared, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So Peter introduces himself first as a bondservant and then an apostle. That's the second way he introduces himself. An apostle describes one who is sent out. It describes a person who is sent out with a message and a mission and who can speak with the, and act with the authority of the sender. Peter was an ambassador. He was representing Jesus Christ. He was one who represented and spoke for Jesus Christ, but yet he was not quick to show off his authority as an apostle. Apostle came second. Bond servant and then apostle. And at the end of verse 1, Peter identifies the recipients. He says, to those who have obtained like precious faith. Peter is writing to those who have the same salvation that he experienced, which he calls like precious faith. The faith that is of great value. It is precious. And P- precious is a word that Peter likes using. You see it in both his letters throughout, all over the place. 1 Peter 1.7, 1.19, one Peter two four two six two seven one three, and four here in one one and also in verse four. And notice it's like it's like precious faith. Look at that. It says like precious faith, faith because it it links the believers to God. It is like precious faith, and by addressing the church in this way to those who have obtained like precious faith, Peter continues to put himself on the same level of spiritual privilege with the church. He was writing to those who had equal standing in Jesus. Those who were on the same spiritual surface with him. To all who had accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what our status in life is. No matter who we are in the Lord. The great joy of our life should be that we are all saved by faith. Like all the other believers who have given their life to the Lord. I got to experience this at the men's retreat a few weeks ago. It's all the men enjoyed that same like precious faith together. It was wonderful. It was just great. No one, you know, is anyone different or better than each other. We were all there just seeking that like precious faith in our Lord. Jesus said in Luke ten twenty Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that your, the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. At the end of verse 1, Peter says, This faith." This faith was obtained or received by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was not by the efforts of man. It was not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here in this context, righteousness has the meaning of justice, fairness, and impartiality. It means that our Lord is no respecter of persons. It means that our Lord makes it possible for anyone... Jew or Gentile, apostle or non apostle, to have the same faith. Notice also how Peter phrases the end of verse 1. He says, and and I love when I read this, I love when I see this in Scripture. He says, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is calling Jesus both God and Savior. I love this. I love this when I see this in the Scriptures. Jesus is God in the flesh, Jesus is, is God. Peter's goal in this opening sentence is to put the reader on the same spiritual surface, surface with himself. In verse 2, Peter's desire is that grace and peace be multiplied. Notice what he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and, and of Jesus our Lord. Grace, it's the, the Greek word charis, it's, unmerited, it's God's unmerited favor. It's That that grace that we need to continually remember that God in his mercy does not give us what we do deserve, but God does give us what we don't deserve. Grace. 1 Peter 5.10 declares that he is the God of all grace. And then he says grace and peace. Peace speaks of the peace of God after a person is born again. It's the inner peace, the inner rest of soul that is a result of the Holy Spirit working in a person's life. Because that person is now saved. That's what he's praying for the, the church. That's what he's at, wanting the church to receive. Peace is what God provides to a, a believer in the midst of all the afflictions and adversities that we may go through in life. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you may have tribula- tribulations. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And the question this morning, this afternoon is, is your soul at rest today? Is your soul at rest, whether you're here or in the fellowship hall or listening over the internet? Is your soul at rest today? Are you looking for peace out in the world, the world's concept of peace today? You can have genuine inner peace by giving your life to the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ. That's what he offers you today. And Peter's desire was that grace and peace be multiplied. Middle of second uh, of verse 2 there. That it would come in abundance. That we would grow and that it would increase. But how is grace and peace multiplied? Look at what he says. It comes through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Knowledge here in verse 2, it refers to a deep, full, correct, personal, intimate knowledge of the Lord. And Peter uses the same word in verse 3 and in verse 8. And this knowledge, it's it's far more than head knowledge. It's far more than intellectual knowledge. It's it's far more of just knowing facts about God. It's more than academic knowledge. It is knowing the Lord in this deep, intimate, personal way. It's proof of the born-again experience because this kind of knowledge, it influences a person's Christian walk. It influences our walk. It changes us. It transforms us. It's allowing the Lord to work in our hearts and allowing Him to transform us and to change us. And that's what God wants. He wants a personal relationship with all of us. He doesn't care what denomination you belong to. He doesn't care if you're involved in a movement. He wants that deep, full, intimate, personal relationship and fellowship with you and me. And we've got to be careful, people, because we live in a day that is just so busy, and we're always in traffic, we're just running, and I'm on the freeway, yesterday probably 10 in the morning and people were just zooming and flying there's no traffic you know and it just people take it you know they're just cr- it's crazy the, the time thing and we got to be careful that we're carving out that time to be with our lord to grow in that knowledge of christ in john 17:3, jesus prayed and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent Grace and peace, it follows as we grow in the knowledge of God and Jesus, as we are taught by his spirit and as we take in his word. And then as we obey his word, we will have grace and peace multiplied in our lives. Truly knowing the Lord is the means by which his grace and peace, it becomes large and powerful in our walk, in our lives. This is Peter's desire for the church. And this is what God wants to do in each and every one of us. In verses 3 and 4, Peter gives us the incredible potential we have for our salvation. It gives us this wonderful reminder here in verse 3 for all of us. Uh, Look at what it says. It says, "As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Incredible. God's power has granted to us everything that we need to live in this life and to live it in a godly manner. This means that every one of us who has given his or her life to Jesus Christ has at our access all that it takes to handle all that life can throw at us and to live it godly. Do you realize this? Do you believe this? In the midst of all that we see going on in our world, in our society... If we're his, God, we can, we can be victorious. God has given us all the, the resources we need to live godly. And that source is this life and godliness is the Lord's divine power, it says there. The power that belongs to Jesus Christ who is God. It's that Acts eight dunamis power. It's the same power that came out of Jesus and healed the woman with the flow of blood in Mark 5. Jesus Christ's power is the resource for the believer to have victory over the flesh, to have victory over the old nature, to have victory over the old habit patterns that once ruled our lives. In and of ourselves, we don't possess this power. And you know that, I know that. But his divine power is giving the believer all things that pertains to life and godliness. The goal is that the gospel, the born-again life, would produce an internal effect in us where it subdues sin and it cultivates holiness. That's the change we need. It's not just going through the motions. It's not just being religious. It's not just showing up to church on Sunday. But it is living and experiencing a real union of soul with the Lord where there is an internal change taking place. And what we need is to come to that place as Paul did when he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Knowing the power, the resurrection, that dunamus power, it's there for us. This is what Peter is saying. And if you have repented and you have given your life to Jesus Christ and you, you have obtained like precious face, it means that you have everything in Christ. You have the power that can be experienced in your life to be godly. Which means uh, having a love for the things of God and to walk in his ways. God has given us all that it takes to grow. But the key, the key is that he's given us as much as we want to grow. The choice is ours. It's up to us how much we want to yield toward that, how much we desire, have that passion, have that urgency to grow in the Lord, to walk in Him. In verse 4, Peter clarifies his message. Look at verse 4. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Notice he, 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 the first two words are he says, by which. And that refers to what comes immediately before, which Peter is referring to the Lord's glory and virtue at the end of verse 3. And that's what he's saying, by which. And Peter is saying, because, and because of his glory and virtue, his glory as God and who he is, because of his greatness, he has given us great and precious promises. And he says, and because of his glory and virtue, The word virtue there, it's his moral excellence. He grants us his precious and magnificent promises because of his moral excellence. In other words, it is because of who he is. This is what Peter is saying. And because of who he is, he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. Exceedingly great in the sense of, of being large. Great and precious promises. And the word precious there, it's that valuable, costly Priceless, something that is impossible to estimate its worth. Those type of promises is what he's given us. And what are some of those promises? He has given us the promise of real life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. He has promised us strength. He has promised us guidance. He has promised us help. He has promised us wisdom. He has promised us his Holy Spirit. He has promised us heaven. John 14.3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And there are just so many, many more promises in his word. It's all ours. It's all ours if we have given our lives to him. And what's really Awesome is that if we truly seek the Lord in his word, if we are truly growing in him, he will reveal promises that are just for us, that are tailor made just for us promises that are personal promises for all our situations in life. I have some of those written in some of my old Bibles that I know the Lord has given to me and I've written them down and I've dated them because I know they were for me and my family and I may show it to you and you'll say, okay, I just says this. But to me, the Lord really spoke, and He hit, and I'm sure you have uh, had that uh, with the Lord also, and it's awesome. Those type of promises are personal; they're tailor made for all our situations. But it's more than just knowing the great and precious promises of God. It's more than just highlighting them in yellow. It's taking those promises. And being able to apply them on a daily basis in our walk with the Lord. It's, it's, it's taking them off the pages of scripture and applying them in, in our daily lives. It's taking them and standing on them and, and, and thanking God for them and living them out and trusting God for them. And what good are these great and precious promises? Look at the middle of verse 4. He says, so that the, by these promises... We might become partakers of the divine nature. This speaks of being a partner. This speaks of being a companion, a sharer in God's divine nature. And the goal of all of God's promises is that he would take us from our fallen state and that he would redeem us and to make us partakers of that divine nature. It is being a partner in the divine nature where It's the divine new nature, and we purge out the old nature. And a born again believer has the capacity to yield to the new nature. Notice the effect of becoming a partaker of the divine nature at the end of verse 4. He says that we may escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. To be able to escape the corruption, the decay that is in the world. This is what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to remove that, that earthly, sensual, devilish nature and make us partakers of his divine nature. He desires to save us from all the corruption, the decay, and all the junk that we see happening out in the world. Notice there at the end of the verse there, it says that he, he expresses the corruption in the world. He, he expresses it that it's expressed through, through lust. The ungodly desires of this world. There is a passion, a lust in this world, you guys, that is out of control. There is a sexual passion, a lust in this world that is destroying people. We see that all the time in the news. And it's wrecking the lives of people, men and women, all over the place. This is what God wants to deliver his people from as we give our lives to him as we seek his truth, as we know him more and more and we obey his word. You see, God is above all the corruption. He's above all that. And he has the power to deliver us if, again, we yield to him, if we, if we walk with him, if we grow in the knowledge of him. So now in verses 5 to 7, we have our responsibility of growing in the Lord. Look at verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. Peter now describes our, our participation in salvation. Since God has given us his divine power, all the resources we need for godliness, now we are to make the effort to grow and walk with the Lord. We are not just to kick back and live a static idle life. Life in Christ is to be a life of growth. It is to be a life where we're progressing and maturing in our walk with the Lord. We are not to rest on this plateau. We should be constantly moving forward in our walk. And the foundation of spiritual growth is the Lord's resources. We have that. But it involves our responsible effort also. Someone put it this way. He said, God sends every bird his food, but he doesn't throw it into the nest. We are to do our part with the Lord in union with our salvation. Peter says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence. There in the middle of verse 5, diligence means to hasten. It refers to showing eagerness, a willingness, making a strong effort to provide something necessary. In our passage, it it, it refers to carrying through with personal involvement, with zeal and commitment. Henrietta Mears, speaking of giving all diligence, once said, uh, it is difficult to steer a parked car, so get moving. Notice Peter uses the word add there in verse 5. Giving all diligence, add to your faith. It means uh, further, uh, simply uh, supply further to your faith, furnish abundantly to your faith. In other words, add means that we have to do something on our part. There is to be an increase by growth, and again, it's not it's not something that comes from our own strength. I'm not talking about earning our way to heaven. But we are to respond to all that the Lord has done. It's based on all what the Lord provides and we serve him. Because we see what he has done in our lives. His mercy, the deliverance, all that he has done and we live for him. And then hopefully we're appreciative and we're excited about our walk and we apply all diligence. But it is our responsibility to act upon it, draw from it. And implemented in our lives. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up. Built up in him and established in the faith. As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So when Peter says, add to your faith, He is referring to saving faith there. When he says add to your faith, he's talking about that saving faith, that which gave you forgiveness of sins and that which gave you access to become a partaker of the divine nature. But we are to give all diligence to add to our faith. And then Peter gives us seven qualities that the believer is to fasten or add to their faith. The first thing is in verse 5. He says add to your faith virtue. And we mentioned this earlier, it means moral excellence, excellence of life, moral excellence, which is demonstrated in life. It's the word virtue here was used to describe uh, the land that produced crops that are excellent because they were fulfilling their intended purpose. Or it was used of a tool that is correctly, that works correctly. And because it works correctly, it's excellent. Because it's doing what a tool is supposed to do. So virtue, moral excellence, means that the best thing that a Christian can do is to fulfill all that he can. a Christian can be as proof of their faith. And as a result, bringing glory to God by their lifestyle, by the way they live it out. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble whatever things are just whatever things are pure whatever things are lovely whatever things are of good report and then Paul says if there is any virtue that's the word and if there is anything praiseworthy meditate on these things there's a list right there that we can use to apply virtue right there whenever those temptations are coming whenever you're about, the enemy's trying to attack you Draw from there. Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, think on those things. Set your mind. Bring that, that relationship with Christ back in so that you don't fall, so that you don't give in. A believer demonstrates moral excellence by vir- or virtue by living the way he or she now has the potential to live because they now possess everything necessary for life and godliness. Look at the end of verse 5. Add to virtue knowledge. This this is a little different word than the one we looked at in the beginning. This is now the Greek word gnosis. And it is understanding, correct insight. And it speaks of truth properly co- comprehended and applied. It involves diligent study and pursuit of the truth in the word of God. So that biblical knowledge is implemented to discern right and wrong and good and evil. And God's word is to shape all our actions and give us daily wisdom for our lives. We know that, but do we do it? Verse 6, and to knowledge, self-control. Self-control speaks of holding passions and desires in hand. The word was used of, of the character of one who mastered his or her desires and passions, especially in sensual appetites. It is self-control that proceeds out from within. The meaning of self-control, it, it's similar to the expression to get a grip. Speaking of the ability to get a grip on oneself. To get a grip on oneself is only possible by depending on the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit within the believer. Proverbs twenty five twenty eight tells us, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. And it's interesting because a city, with the, this, this proverb, it's referring in a sense to the cities of those days that had walls from protection from the enemies, from robbers and the enemies. And if there was no wall, there was no protection. So if there is no self-control, it means a person is wide open to whatever comes in. The world, the flesh, the devil we were unbelievers, that's the way we were. We were wide open. We were, you know, anything that came in, we did it. All our physical appetites, we were enslaved to them. But if you call yourself a Christian and we're believers, we've given our life to the Lord, we've got to realize we've been delivered. We've been delivered and we are to now mortify the flesh. We are to have that self-control and, and that, that, that wall of the Lord just protecting us. Because of all that he has given us that pertains to life and godliness. And living a godly life calls for us to master the flesh and make it our servant servant rather than it being our master. And Paul speaks of self-control in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Uh, and he uses this as a picture, uses a picture of an athlete to describe this. When he talks about self-control here and he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race... all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize, he says, is temperate. Self-control, self-restraint. Is, is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who breathes the air. Then he says, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. As believers, because of the Holy Spirit living within us, we are to add to our faith self-control. It comes forth from our faith in Christ. And as a result, there is a potential to, to have self-control in our walk, in our lives. And it, we're able to control our temper. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. When there is self-control, there is the potential to exercise control over our passions, our thoughts. The power to say no to temptations. The power to set godly priorities. The self-control even to get out of bed in the morning and to spend that time with the Lord. You see, you guys, we don't have to take a course on how to become self-disciplined. If we are diligent and we yield to the word of God and the Holy Spirit, then we have all that it takes to see God work in our lives and give us victory. It's here. We have it. A believer will manifest a correct life on the outside because he, has, he or she has cho- chosen to yield to the Spirit's control on the inside. In the middle of verse 6, Peter says, And to self control, perseverance. Perseverance is bearing up under a heavy load, but it also portrays a picture of steadfastness, faithfulness, and endurance. It describes the quality of character that does not surrender to circumstances under trial. I like the way one person, one commentator described it. He said, perseverance is the attitude of the soldier who in the thick of battle is not dismayed, but fights on stoutly whatever the difficulties. And perseverance has the ability to focus. When there's perseverance in our lives, it has the ability to focus uh, beyond the current pressures. And it looks forward. There's hope in perseverance. Just as our Lord was our example in Hebrews 12:2. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured, persevered. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So when it seems like, like our Lord's coming is endless, and, you know, we're just going through stuff, we need perseverance we need to add perseverance to continue in this life to and to persist in the calling that god get, has given to each and every one of us romans 8:22 to 25 says for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now not only that but we also have the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? And then he says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. God gives perseverance, but it takes waiting on him. It takes trusting him. It takes really seeking him and really knowing him. Psalm 37, 7 says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out the wicked schemes. Romans 15, 5 says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. And so we are enabled to perseverance when we fix our hope completely on Jesus, who is our eternal hope. Peter goes on to say at the end of verse 6 and to, and to perseverance, godliness, literally, godlikeness. It is a desire motivated by love to be pleasing to the Lord in all things that we say, do, and think. It speaks of a complete commitment and devotion to God. It speaks of being right with God and as a result, right with other people. In other words, godly behavior coming forth from our our walk. It is living a lifestyle by showing reverence for God as we live before others, even the lost. A person adding godliness to their faith seeks to do the will of God, and as they do, they seek to be godly towards others, making the kind of decisions that are right and that are honorable. It's more than just going to church on Sunday. Godliness is not giving in to the pagan, dark culture around us on Monday and the rest of the week. Godliness is not talking godly, but it's living godly. We can all talk godly. We all know the words. You know, praise the Lord, hallelujah, right on bro, you know, all that stuff. But do we live it? It's living godly. It is experiencing the fact by your life that you are serving a higher king than the one who is over the world of darkness. It is a born-again believer bringing in the sanctifying presence of God into my life experiences. Bringing them in when those, those things are happening and there's a spiritual aspect that's going on in our lives. True spiritual, deep, complete, intimate knowledge of God gives us the means of growth. The means of discernment and the urgency that will change our behavior and cause us to live godly. 1 Timothy 4 8 says, For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. A believer should live in a godly manner since Jesus is going to return. I think a lot of the church has forgotten that, that he's coming soon. And we need to remember that. And that hopefully will God, cause us to live godly because it's going to happen any minute. Second Peter. He, Peter says this in chapter 3 of this same epistle. Second Peter 3.10 and 11. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And then he says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter had a real concern for the church. Notice he continues in verse 7, and he says, add to godliness brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness is the love which Christians have for each other as brethren. It is the love between fallow believers, a family-like devotion that should characterize fallow believers. It's the name that P. Diddy just changed his name to. Brother love. It's crazy, but that's what it means. <laughs> Dude's nuts. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another. There's so much strength. And this kind of love and those of us who have been here in this church and we know that that brotherly kindness, that love is so it's so power. It's so there's so much strength in that. First John 314 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He He who does not love abides in death. It's a mark that we're born again. This love of fellow believers with one another crosses every barrier, racial and social. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Peter commanded it in his first epistle, chapter 1, 1 Peter 1.22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. See, we need to be careful, though, because, again, Satan loves to cause cause disunity among the believers, among the brethren. And sin in our life will separate us from the believers. It also alienates us. It'll alienate us from one another, and you end up just being off on your own, and the enemy has his way with us. We've got to be careful. Brotherly kindness must be cultivated. We must add it to our faith diligently. And at the end of verse 7, Peter says, add to brotherly kindness, love. God's agape love. Add to that brotherly kindness, God's agape love. It is the love of the cross, sacrificial love. Biblically, it refers to a love that God is. First John four sixteen. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. It is a love that God shows. He displays this love. 1 John 4 9. In this is the love of God, in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And it is a love that God calls those who are his, if you're a believer, to diligently add to our faith. First Corinthians 13, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Does not seek his own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in inequity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love, God's love, never fails. And we are called to add that to our lives. It is possible. If you are in Christ Jesus, the love of God has been poured into your hearts. Romans 5. This kind of love comes as a result again of having that God's divine power working in our lives. It comes as a result of a real knowledge of God growing in our lives. And if you're a Christian, then we have the capacity to love in God's love. Question, when was the last time you asked God to give you that kind of love for someone? To help you see them through his eyes? It is to flow through the believer God's love. So Peter gives us seven qualities that the believer is to add to his or her faith. That we are to cultivate, that we are to diligently pursue after. And then in verses 8 through 11, we have the necessity of growing in the Lord. Look at verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. For if these things, if these qualities, if all these things he just laid out for the church are yours and abound, if they're increasing, if they're existing in abundance, Peter is saying that we are to abound in these qualities. And when all of these things are happening, Peter says we will not be barren or unfruitful. He says there in verse 8. It means that our walk with our Lord will not become inoperative. Our walk with the Lord will not become ineffective. We won't be yielding it. There will be yielding no return. It won't be worthless. It won't be unprofitable. But where all these qualities listed are in abundance and where they're increasing, it's proof, it's evidence that there is a true knowledge of the Savior in your life. Look at verse 9. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. If we lack these qualities, it shows that we have eye trouble. We're unable to see God. We only see ourselves. We lose the eternal perspective and we only focus on ourselves and the things of this earth. It shows that we're carnal. And it shows that we have forgotten the great work that God has done in our lives. We are not to shut our eyes to the spiritual growth that that is to take place in our walk with the Lord. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Peter is basically saying, instead of blindness, instead of having forgotten that you've been cleansed, cleanse from your sins brethren be even more diligent. he's mentioning diligence again like he did in verse five but now he's saying be even more diligent go for it confirm your profession of faith by godly living. It's going if you do that you're going to give proof to yourself that you're a Christian. In other words if we are following the qualities that we looked at today then we are endorsing by our own lives, The fact that God is in us and that we're validating that we are truly a Christian. And the benefit for us is that we will not be stumbling in our walk. Peter says, for if you do these things, he goes back to the responsibility of the believer to work hand in hand with the Lord and the Lord's divine enablement. And then he says there, you will never stumble. God has provided a way and it's not that we're sinless or we're perfect, but that he's talking about that that we can have a walk that, that steadily grows and is not going backwards. That not every couple of months we're backsliding again and we're falling away and we're doing the things that we were supposed to be cleansed from. And that we gave our we, we repented from. Not going backwards. There's an ongoing process. We, we go forward. Even in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. There's progress. There's progression going forward. Maturity. The believer is to build his or her salvation on the rock. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, that solid foundation. In verse 11, we have the great goal for our lives. He says, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the great goal for our lives. If we're diligent to grow in godliness, God he will welcome us into our eternal dwelling and and he'll pour out spiritual blessing after blessing for our faithful pilgrimage, our faithful journey here on this earth. You don't want to just, oh gosh, I didn't think he was going to make it. (laughs) You know? Jeez. You want that abundant entrance. You want God to just, man... You know, sometimes we have that Christian mentality where we think that, you know, and as long as I make it, you know, come on, that, that, that's, that's not what it's, we're called to do. And again, it's not to say that salvation is by works, but genuine salvation, it always results in a life of growing in godliness. Peter's concern is that the church would have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of our Lord. Our entrance should be our aim, our entrance into heaven should be our aim and our goal. That should be our ultimate goal. So, no one who has given his or her life to Christ can afford to let spiritual growth stop. Salvation must be con- uh, followed and commit- continued by spiritual growth. We've got to seek out God's truth and apply them to our lives. Because if we don't, we're going to fall prey to all the dangerous thinking patterns and the attitudes that mark our society and our culture. It's such a joy to see somebody give their lives to the Lord at crusades and at outreaches that we do. It's, it's awesome. But it's just a greater joy, if not better, to see somebody grow after they give their lives to the Lord and, and grow and be used. And, and you see them get solid in their walk. There's nothing like that. Peter had grown himself. Peter was a changed man. If you look at him in the beginning, you look at him after Pentecost, he had grown incredibly. And he invites us to do the same. So as we close, I want to just throw out a few things to consider today as we leave, as we spend our day. A couple of things to think about. A few things. Do you find that you have truly grown from where you were to greater areas of maturity in your walk with the Lord? Can you see spiritual growth in your life with Christ? Is the perseverance of the Lord manifesting itself more and more when you face the challenges of life? Are you trusting the Lord more and more than ever before? Are you bothered by sinful habits in your life that never used to bother you before? Or are those sinful habits not bothering you anymore? Is the old ways of life progressively left behind you? Are they, is it going away? Are you obeying the Lord's commands more faithfully and consistently? Do you have a love for God's people more and more and a love for things less? Is the Bible alive in you? Do you have an excitement to study God's word and grow in deep, intimate knowledge with the Lord more than ever before? Or are you too busy now to spend time in the Word? Or you just don't have the passion? Are you still devoted to sharing His love with others? Sharing the gospel? Do you serve Him with more devotion than you used to? Are you still looking forward to heaven? Do you look forward to heaven more? Have you received genuine faith in Jesus? Do you know Him? Do you know Him as your God and your Savior? You see, growth cannot happen. It cannot take place until there's birth. Just like those plants that I mentioned. If Gloria didn't plant the seeds, nothing would grow. Salvation is the main prerequisite for spiritual growth. So if you're here today or you're in the fellowship hall or you're listening over the internet and you've never given your life to the Lord and... Or you've walked away from him. You need to come back. You need to give your life to the Lord. It's not a coincidence that you're listening to this today. And I pray that we would all truly value the source of growing in the Lord. And that we would pay heed to the responsibility and the necessity of growing in the Lord. Peter, he cared and he wanted the church to do the same. He even ends his letter at the end of this letter, Second Peter 3.18. And I'm going to end it the same way. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just want to stop right now and give you the praise and glory, Lord, for your incredible mercy from where you've brought many of us from, Lord. Father, as we examine and we look back and See, Lord, your incredible hand and in how you graciously forgive us of our sins every day. But, Lord, I pray that we would truly desire to lay out some of, and implement some of these things, all these things that you've shown us today, Lord, to grow in our walk with you, to value the precious resources that we have in you, Lord, to apply all these, these characteristics, Lord, and that we would not stay the same. Father, and I do pray for the non believer, the person who's walked away, if there's anyone listening, if there's anyone that wants to give their life to Jesus, that they would pray this prayer right now. Father, forgive me of all my sins. Change my heart. I give my life to you so that I may grow in you and live for you. I give my life to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.